Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. This episode of Slam the Gavel is sponsored by CPS Protect Consulting Services. A Child Protective Services case is one of the most frightening experiences for any parent. Don't face it alone. Face it with confidence, with urgent assist by CPS Protect. You can have access to former CPS investigators to make sure you preserve your rights and protect your family. If you're facing CPS, CPS involvement and aren't sure where to turn, their child welfare consultants can help you. Visit cpsprotect.com forward slash subscribe and enter the coupon code slam the gavel for 60% off your first year of urgent assist. This is available in all 50 states. I have another announcement. Bradley's mother, Narcus Golan, passed away in the fall of 2022. Bradley is autistic and needs structure and routine and therapies he receives for his autism six days a week. However, Italy just entrusted Bradley to Italian social services. If he has ruled to go back, he will face the next three to four years in the Italian foster care system where he can't speak or understand the language. He will then be taken away from the only family he has ever known. Please call Governor Hochul at 518-474-8390 to keep Bradley here safe in these United States. That's Governor Hochul, 518-474-8390, hashtag keep Bradley safe. Another announcement, go to the site pleasedoyourjob.com. We need 2,500 more signatures to open a case. That's pleasedoyourjob.com. One last announcement. You all are invited to the conference with uh, Custody Coalition Custodial Interference Press Conference on October 31st, 2023 at 10.30. And this is at the Pennsylvania State Capitol in Harrisburg, PA, in the main rotunda stairs. So that is Interference with Child Custody Coalition Custodial Interference Press Conference on October 31st. I have a return guest on. I'm so happy to have Brian Bukadinovich back on. He was on season four, episode 69, 99, and 119. And we're going to talk about some of the mistreatments by the uh, the judges and the need for the public to take notice of this essentially criminal enterprise of the family courts and how they're using children and parents as pawns in their cash-for-profit enterprise disguise as family court. I welcome you, Brian Vukadinovich. I'm so glad to have you on. And, you know, where are you at with your case? Uh, right now, we're uh, we're in a situation where the uh, this is against uh, Judge uh, Richard A. Posner, uh, a very uh, prominent and famous uh, federal court of appeals judge who hired me to work for him after he retired from the judiciary. Uh, he was a federal court of appeals judge in Chicago for the Seventh Circuit uh, for a little over 36 years. And then after 36 years, uh, his, his, his public quote was that he uh, was, was in a slumber and he didn't realize that the pro se's were getting so abused and mistreated by the judges on the Seventh Circuit. And he publicly professed uh, that that made him upset. He said it took him 36 years to figure it out. And then he said, basically, I'm out of here. So then he took his retirement and he formed a company called the Posner Center of Justice for Pro Se's. And then uh, he heard that uh, he heard that I had won a, a federal civil rights jury trial on my own uh, pro se. 
uh, it was against my former employer. We had a five-day uh, jury trial, and I represented myself. Corporation had a team of lawyers, and I was able to win the case. I won the jury verdict, and I was awarded a little bit over $200,000 for the corporations uh, violating my due process rights. So then he asked me if I would come on board and help him uh, with, the, with the Posner Center and so forth, and then he also asked me to help him with some things he was doing he was doing as well he was having some battles going on with the chief judge of the seventh circuit diane wood and he said you know you know how to write you know how to respond to things and so forth maybe you could advise me on some of these things so i said fine so we entered into an agreement and uh he was to pay me $120,000 a year salary and i worked uh, for I believe it was 17 months. Uh, he never paid. He wouldn't pay any. He wouldn't pay me the money that he owed me. So uh, I had to end up suing him. I, I contacted him and asked him to please take care of his obligation. I sent him several emails, a letter, and so forth, and no responses back. And so I ultimately had to sue him. So then I sued him in federal court on a diversity uh situation because i'm in indiana he's in illinois usually in federal court it has to have uh, some type of federal laws involved but if the so that your audience would know that if you're a citizen in different states with your adversary you can actually go to uh, federal court and ask the federal court to to take you know to handle the case under uh, uh, diversity jurisdiction mm -hmm. so i did that and then uh, he's got a team of lawyers from New York, Chicago, and Indiana. I'm representing myself. So it's the same old typical lawyer nonsense that you have to go through. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm going through it as we speak here right now. Mm -hmm. So they filed a motion to dismiss my case uh, well over a year ago or so. And then finally, we got a ruling on it. And... Uh, the judge, the judge uh, ruled that that I did have uh, did have a case uh, to go forward to move forward, and then the judge denied uh, Posner's motion. So uh, there's a, I have a uh, it's breach of contract and unjust enrichment it's called, and their lawyers are all scampering around now trying to figure out how you know how they're going to get out of that. They're playing all these little mm -hmm. uh, cute little games they're trying to trying to uh, play here that I'm dealing with now. So they lost. They don't like it. They don't like to admit it, especially when it's a pro se. They lost. Right. They got their hind ends beat. And that's how it's going to be moving forward. I will continue to to uh, to uh, beat their hind end, so to speak, to put it nicely here. Mm -hmm. So um, so then um, they, they actually had the audacity to I got a letter from early on before the lawsuit was filed when I was giving them a chance to, to take care of this. I got a letter from a lawyer in Chicago, and he said that uh, that uh, uh, Posner uh, lacked the legal capacity to form a binding contract. They didn't, he didn't have the legal capacity because of a um, alleged uh, illness that he has with Alzheimer's. That so far in the litigation, they haven't really proved up yet. So I don't know, you know, where that's at. I'm gonna you know, get into discovery and find out all those things. But it was oh no no. Uh, Posner didn't have the legal capacity to enter into a contract with you. So too bad for you. Oh. So then after, which is nonsense, I might add, because at the time we entered into our contract, our agreement, 
He was writing books. He was running the Posner Center. He was doing interviews. And on top of all of that, a year later in 2019, he actually took a job himself as, a, as an advisor to some legal uh, company in, in California. So that was obviously lawyer nonsense for sure. Mm -hmm. And now that they lost their ruling to dismiss the case, they just very recently filed filed uh, 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 answer and uh, answers to the lawsuit, which they were supposed to file 14 months ago, according to the rules, and they didn't. So then after they lost the ruling to, to dismiss, then they came in with all kinds of other nonsense now. Now, I will be dealing with that in short order here, but well, one of the things they said, one of the things they wrote was uh, the defendant lacked, capa lacked capacity to form a binding contract. That was one of the things, the things I just mentioned here. And then, uh, and then they also said that the agreement was formed with the center and not with the defendant personally, Posner being the defendant. And my contract was with Posner, <clears throat> not with the, not with the uh, center. I have all, you know, this is all in email form and writing. So that's nonsense, but this is what lawyers do. <clears throat> and then um, they said that the, the, the claims are barred because the contract was quote unconscionable at the time it was made. I mean, I mean, this, <laughs> this is absolutely it's just absolutely ludicrous. And then they say, and then get this, now listen to this one now, and I'm gonna have fun with this one at the trial for sure. The claims are barred because plaintiff, me, quote, no knowingly induced defendant to enter into the alleged contracts. <laughs> they, they actually had the audacity to say, that I knowingly induced Posner to enter into the alleged contract when it was Posner who wrote to me and asked me to work for him. He wrote to me. This is in writing. And they had the, this is what lawyers do. And this is what we're going to talk about some of the cases that you wrote about in your great book here and what uh, some of the people are, are dealing with with lawyers in their family court cases. And then they had the audacity to state that I that plaint quote plaintiff failed to perform, but to perform despite defendant's alleged non-payment. I, I I continued to work despite him not paying me. Yes, I did because I was a loyal employee of his. Mm -hmm. He told me he was going to pay me. I relied on his word, and that I and he they wrote that. Uh, first, they said I failed to perform despite his alleged non-payment, and then they said in the next paragraph that I quote materially breached the party's alleged agreement by failing to perform the acts he he promised to perform. They said that I performed the duties, I continued to work, even though I wasn't being paid. And then they turn around and said that I breached the agreement because I failed to perform what I promised to perform in the agreement. Just unbelievable. 100%. So I'm going to deal with that in short order here. But this is, this is what happens when lawyers become involved uh, in these cases. They do everything they can to 
to do whatever they can to take the ball, you know, take the eye off the ball and actually what's mm -hmm. that issue in the case. They start throwing all this nonsense. I know you went through it in your case, and we're going to talk about, uh, I, I know the lawyer uh, in your case basically uh, tried to intimidate you. I know that didn't work. And you had reported some things uh, that the lawyer had said that were that were out of line. The lawyer got mad about it and said to you, well, I, I didn't say that. And I don't appreciate that type of thing. And you responded, well, yes, you did, in fact, say it. And just, you know, just because you want to deny it now after the fact, too bad for you. And you went ahead and and uh, and filed your you know reports on it and so forth. And this is what people actually need to do mm -hmm. now. Unfortunately, the system is so broken that uh, it's pretty much whatever the lawyers and the judges say and, and pretty much the hell with what the, the people, and particularly the pro se's, have to say. And that needs to change. So uh, that's something that we'll talk about here a little bit today and some of the things maybe we can do to put a little pressure on there. I mean, I, some, of the, some of the stories I read in your book about uh, some of the things that were going on with the people, with, ju with these judges, I mean, it's just a uh, situation. Uh, I think it was when, uh, in Lee Grenade's case, uh, her house was actually burned down. Mm -hmm. and, uh, they had strong evidence. That I think there was a, there was a, a forensic, uh, forensic uh, there was an affidavit filed by a forensic uh, uh, chairman of the International Association of Fraud stated on, on documents that uh, it was strongly implied that the that it was arson that was committed by her ex-husband and, and his new wife and so forth. And there was, uh, she had a lot of evidence about, uh, uh, about that arson situation and they basically blew it off because her husband actually had a lot of clout. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was kind of a well-known person in the community and so forth. And they just kind of blew everything off when it came to, to Lee's case. And then, uh, and then we have uh, Heidi and Matt Weber, and I, I should apologize ahead of time so the audience realizes, you know, we, we can only talk about so much here, and you got so many great things to, uh, uh, you wrote about so many stories in the, in the book about we can't talk about each and every one of them, but we're in, in spirit, we are talking about each and every one of them. And in Heidi and Matt Weber's case, uh, they had gathered evidence. It was, it's, we're talking about all family court cases here now. Uh, they gathered evidence. They spent uh, life savings of $11,000 for depositions. And the federal judge, his name was William Connolly. Yep. He, he just, they had their case was set for trial. And then just five weeks before the trial, this judge, Connolly, dismissed the case because the legal arguments such as the font, the formatting, mm -hmm. wasn't presented to him the way he wanted it. So, oh boy, <sighs> I don't like how this was presented to me. You're, you're trying to handle this on your own. You really can no longer afford to hire all these lawyers. So you mm -hmm. got to do the best you can on your own. So let me as the judge now, instead of actually dispensing some justice here well i don't like how you prepared this uh, i don't like the font you used i don't like the formatting and therefore i'm just going to go ahead and dismiss your case uh-huh that's so unconscionable and immoral mm -hmm. that, that the judges would go that far instead of taking a very serious issue 
uh, and and well, I'm just going to throw the case out. Uh, you know, this has got to stop in this country. Yeah. It's got to stop. And uh, one thing, one thing that you know, I would like for your audience. Uh, I think it's important for your audience to understand. I think we've talked about this before. Uh, there's there, there's there's what's called. Uh, you know, first of all, in that particular situation, uh, with uh, Heidi and Matt's case, actually, there's uh, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States. There's a case uh, is titled Haynes versus Carner. And the Supreme Court has long ago determined that when a person is representing themselves, that the courts have an obligation to, mm -hmm. to put give them some latitude on their written pleadings. They understand they're not lawyers. They can't write it, you know, in legalese terms sometimes, but they can state their case in, in, uh, in our basic English language that, that they can read and they can understand. And because it's not so uh written in legalese well then i'm just going to throw your case out yeah. that actually goes against haynes versus kerner so whoever's handling their case pro se write down haynes versus kerner h-i-a-h-i-i-n-e-s versus kerner and cite that case always in your pro se uh, pleadings and another thing that uh your audience would probably be good to know is that the Judiciary Act of 1799, which is an act of Congress, gave the people the, the fundamental right in this country to represent themselves without a lawyer. That's, that's an act of Congress, the, the Judiciary Act of 1789. So whenever a judge starts in right away on the pro se, uh, why, why don't you have a lawyer? Uh, you should have a lawyer and all of that nonsense stuff. You can remind the judge, Your Honor, if you don't know about the Judiciary Act of 1789, then you need to go back into your law books and on, onto the internet, and you can find that law. It's a it's a federal law. I have the right to represent myself. I do not need to hear you lambasting me here because I'm representing myself. I have the right under a congressional act to do so. And mm -hmm. I will do so whether you like it or not. And you need to apply the laws of the case without all of this unnecessary nonsense that you're trying to throw out here because you want to play the lawyer game. That's got to stop. I'm sorry. I, you know, I'm right. very, I have very strong feelings about that. And it's got to stop. Right. Because Matt and Heidi Weber's case had so much merit to it. It had such, it was just so egregious what this caseworker pulled on that family. Uh, and then for the judge to get them this far and then dismiss the case five weeks before trial, I just could I just could not believe that. I was just so uh, sad beyond. Well, a word that you just used, uh, caseworker, uh, I've been reading in, in several of your, uh, of your the stories that you wrote about, uh, I'm, I'm seeing the word caseworker a lot. And it, it appears that uh, whatever the caseworker says goes. So <laughs> if the caseworker goes in and has an attitude, either uh, pro-mother or anti-mother or, or even pro-father or, or anti-father, whichever way that particular caseworker wants to go in the case, rather than actually what's going on in the case and in the best interest of, of the kids, that caseworker can just say whatever they want and they're getting away with it. And yes. then when you go in there into court in front of the judge, the judge reads what the caseworker says, 
and pretty much it's uh, when you try to respond and you try to point out with evidence, I might add, from what I mm -hmm. read in your book here, with evidence, uh, pretty much uh, keep a mouth shut. Uh, I don't need to hear any more from you. I see what the caseworker says. Case closed. Mm -hmm. So uh, what what part of due process is that satisfied that you cannot put the caseworker on the stand and and confront the caseworker with the lies and so forth. Uh, you know, it's a terribly broken down system. And I'm sorry, uh, but it's very much money oriented, uh, as we'll probably talk about here in a little bit with the Kids for Cash scheme out of, out of uh, Pennsylvania that I know you're familiar with, mm -hmm. uh, with two judges there. Uh, they were, they were, uh, uh, they had a deal set up with this. Uh, they built this facility, a private facility. Let's get as many people in here we can. We the more the more kids we get in here, the more money we we make. So they had this deal set up with with two crooked judges. It was in Lucerne County Court of Common Pleas in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and the names of the two judges were Michael Conahan and. Mark Ciarvarella and uh, Conahan uh, was convicted and Ciarvarella ended up uh, pleading uh, guilty. And then they were, they were some kids, uh, some one, one kid went on the internet, I guess, and he said something bad about an assistant principal. Uh, and then, uh, and then consequently he ends up in the juvenile center mm -hmm. and then there's uh, money that ends up in the judge's pocket because he was, uh, sent him to that center. And then another one was at an abandoned, uh, building somewhere. And then, uh, when I got to the judge's attention, I said, okay, I'm going to put you, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to accept money. I'm going to take a bribe. I'm going to put it in my pocket and I'm going to put you in the juvenile center so I can make money off of this. So this is the kind of stuff. Now, these were two instances where they were caught. So giving credit to the law enforcement authorities, uh, they did investigate that and they did prosecute. Now, I don't know how much it took to get that done. It probably took a whole lot of complaining by people, you know, to get something like that done, because usually they just look the other way. As soon as they hear judge, I'm accusing the judge of impropriety. Well, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. So in those particular cases, it did happen. Now, for the most part, and I know I read in your book situations where the people were complaining and file complaints they just blow them off they just right. completely blow them off and this is the problem that we're having in our country because money talks mm -hmm. and believe it or not judges love money and they know the smell and they love the smell of money and they know and the lawyers know how to get that aroma of the money out there to the judge and there's a lot of stuff that's going on behind the scenes that needs to change um and going back to that kids for cash scheme, uh, as you had mentioned, you know, a kid being put in there for like something so petty. And I had read somewhere that some, I don't know if this kid was 10 years old or 11, but he was totally handcuffed and was not even allowed to say goodbye to his parents and just taken off into this uh, facility. And uh, as far as uh, this Mark Chiaverella, he is a registered inmate at the Federal Correction Institute Institution at Ashland, Kentucky. His projected release date is June 18th, 2034. And um, let me see here. Michael Conahan, I was trying to see what happened to him. But um, 
Okay. He, um, let me see. Cause I know, I think maybe he could have been released because of the pandemic. I know one of them got released. That must've been him. Um, <laughs> well, it, it, it's unbelievable. Uh, and, and that cockroach should continue to stay in jail. I don't pandemic or not pandemic. I don't, right. I don't care. They find, you know, the lawyers find these reasons and the judges accommodate them and, and he should be in jail. And you know what? The Pennsylvania's Judicial Conduct Board had already received four complaints about Conahan between 2004 and 2008, and later admitted, after it received the complaints, they later admitted that they failed to investigate any of them, nor did they seek documentation regarding the cases. So clearly, four times, and it, one time should have been enough to investigate. This was four different times, four different complaints, and they would not investigate, nor did they even care to look at any evidence in the case. And this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. And if they would have done their job then, then all those things would, have, would not have happened after the fact. So my question is this now, okay? My question is this. That Judicial Conduct Board, I feel, I strongly feel they're just as guilty as he was because that's being complicit in a crime that you're basically covering up. Mm -hmm. So my question is, why weren't the people on that board investigated and prosecuted? If they're, if they're knowingly and intentionally saying, look, I don't want to hear it, even though you have information and evidence about it, we are not going to look into this uh, illegal corruption that's going on. And then later on, after the fact, when it becomes obvious that it was illegal, then why aren't they being investigated and prosecuted? See, that's the problem here. And same thing with the caseworkers. If they're lying about things on their reports that are being used in court, why are they not being investigated and prosecuted as well? Because mm -hmm. the system protects them. The system doesn't care about the common people. The system cares about protecting the judges and the court-related officials. And I'm going to go ahead and say, and actually cares a little bit more about judges who are who are being bribed and are on the take. And mm -hmm. they don't want to have that out into the public. They don't want the public to know all of these things that we're discussing here right now. So mm -hmm. that's why the people need to be in an uproar in this country. They're, they're, they should be building, I, honestly, instead of building some of those juvenile centers that they're using uh, kids for so they can make money, they should be building some some jails specifically for corrupt judges mm -hmm. and put them in there is what they should be spending that money on. Uh, mm -hmm. If they would do that, we would have a far more equitable and just and fair uh, judicial system in this country, because right now it is quite the opposite. Right, because if you put one of those into, say, uh, a normal prison or whatever, you know, even an attorney, they're going to be giving free, <laughs> giving out free legal advice to criminals. Yeah, that's true. But I might add, some of that free legal advice probably isn't worth worth uh, the salt. You know, just some of these guys really, you know, honestly, sometimes a lot. There's a lot of lawyers out there who really don't know what they're doing. To be honest about it, oh, yeah, they're yeah, smart enough to. 
you know, they, they have the savvy to pass law school tests, you know, and, and exams and so forth. But when it comes to actually practicing law, I see a lot of them out there. And I'm like, how, how did this guy ever even get a law degree? So if those yeah. guys are in there uh, and, and that, you know, the, the horrible ones would be the ones that would be in there that don't know what they're doing and are corrupt anyway. So if they're in there giving advice to these other uh, criminal judges and criminal court officials and so forth, you know, then, then have at it and then have yeah. at it. But they all need to be put in there and the key thrown away. Lock yes. them up and throw the key away and let them do their thing. That's mm -hmm. my point. That's my position on it. Well, I, you know, I had, yeah, I mean, I had interviewed um, attorney T. Matt Phillips and he's running a class action lawsuit in California and um, he's not suing the judges. He's suing the judicial council for that. They, they're supposed to train these judges, but he's got like 11 uh, family uh, families on this class action lawsuit. So I, I hope he wins. So something's got to be done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the problems probably that's going to happen, unfortunately, is this uh, immunity that these not only judges have, but even court, it extends to court officials as well. They come in right away. Well, we have immunity. We're part of the court system. Uh, you can't sue us. They, uh, the, the legislatures, the state legislatures uh, in each state, uh, there's federal immunities in federal courts and their state uh, in each state will have their own form of their immunities. But all judges have uh, uh, it, it's almost impossible. Now, I talked about how I'm suing uh, Pos Posner, Posner, who's a former uh, federal judge, but I'm suing him in his personal capacity. Nothing not in his judicial capacity. So that wasn't available to him, even though he is was a judge. He is no longer a judge. Now, he's just a regular defendant although his lawyers want to make sure that the judge in the case realizes that, you know, you know, you know, he's a former federal judge and so forth. So we've already dealt with all of that, but uh, they have so much immunity. And, and what is this? Uh, nobody's above the law thing. When judges have immunity, they're above the law. <laughs> Clearly they're above the law. You can't sue me, even though you have evidence that I did wrong, that I was corrupt. You can't sue me because I have judicial immunity. You can't sue a judge. Now, these court officials, that's a little bit of a different situation, but I'm sure they're going to put that out there for sure for the judge to consider. And whether or not they have immunity, uh, I would be real surprised if they don't get a whole lot of uh, in the case as well. Anything when you start bringing, when you start suing court uh, affiliated people uh, that are somehow associated with the court system, they get great favoritism, great deference by the judges. So it'll be extremely hard. And I don't, is that person pro se? Are they doing this pro se? Well, he's you a, know? he's a Supreme court attorney and he's uh, running this lawsuit for these. Oh, well, well then that uh, you might have some luck there then. Yeah. He's a, uh, well, he's, he's a Supreme court, former Supreme court attorney. He's got, he's got a little bit of muscle, so he might get somewhere with it. Hopefully. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, but still, the system is the system. I, I have very little to zero confidence uh, when it comes to anything involving. Uh, uh, I mean, I I, I filed a judicial complaint, this kind of complaint against uh, a, a federal court of appeals judge, and it's sitting in Washington D.C. right now. They're trying to sweep that under the rug. They 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 don't they they're afraid to even make a, a ruling on the case. It's just sitting there because they know. 
the evidence clearly supports what the petition states, oh, we can't do this because then the public's going to know we have corrupt federal judges on, on the bench. That's the problem that we're having in this country. Mm -hmm. So the people need to uh, stand up and speak out against this. And, and uh, otherwise, uh, it's just the status quo is going to continue. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll tell you another another uh, bad, bad situation. Uh, I know I know that you had contact that you wrote about and had uh, discussed things with Adrian uh, Miranda, her case of what she went through. Her son was murdered uh, mm -hmm. in uh, Baltimore, Baltimore County. And the, uh, it, the, it was the incident. He was at work and something happened. I think he was on a on a uh, working uh, on a machine of some sort. And some some guy hit him, struck him and it threw him off. the. Mm -hmm. There it is. Yeah. Her beautiful son and and killed them. And it was ruled a homicide by the medical examiners. I'm going to say this again. It was ruled a homicide by the medical examiners, and yet the Baltimore County prosecutor refused to investigate or prosecute the murder. Now, how can that be? How can know. that possibly be? The, the young man was obviously murdered. The medical examiner determined that it was a homicide, and the prosecutor, who is supposed to be protecting the public, against these types of things. Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to investigate it or prosecute it. That should have been investigated. That should have went to a trial and there should have been a verdict in that case. Right. And, uh, that person who, who who murdered that that beautiful young boy should be in prison probably today. Right. And that didn't happen because of our corrupt system. And, and, you, and, and that's why I read off that please do your job.com because she needs 2,500 more signatures to open up that case. For Amanda? Yeah. Uh, for Adrian Miranda. Yeah. For, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Adrian. Yeah. Adrian, first name Miranda. Yeah. Adrian needs some justice here for sure. I mean, every time I see a picture of her, and you do have a picture of her in your book there, uh, uh, I just, you almost want to cry for what she's going through. She lost her son. She lost her son. The authorities will not will not do their job. Mm. Uh, I'm sure there's politics involved with it. For sure, there's no question about it. And we need to we need to do something. Uh, I just it's just it's just horrific. And and uh, and also uh, Reggie and uh, Tamson Bowles. Okay, they had six lawyers in their case. They're just dishing out money all over the place. Six yep. different lawyers. And then uh, they have evidence that the caseworker committed perjury under oath. That she, and then uh, it was they went to court. They, they went to court. They filed their evidence, which was contradicted by the emergency room experts, and the assistant DA in the case withheld the evidence, and that's how it works. So they got no justice. So, mm -hmm. so neither did uh, Reggie and Thompson Bolts. This is the system. If you have evidence against court-related officials, we don't want to see it. We don't want to consider it too bad for you. Mm -hmm. You know, there, I'm, there should be there should be special units, prosecution units, law enforcement agency units, where people who are experiencing this type of corruption from lying and prosecutors who fail 
to do their jobs in the face of the strong evidence of these cases, there should be places where people can go where there's enough muscle that something can be done. There should be grand juries being held. These cases, all of these cases, each one of these cases that we talk about, when these people were being ignored and blown off, there should be some kind of an agency that has enough muscle to bring pressure to have grand juries called in and and have these caseworkers and these crooked lawyers and these crooked judges and these crooked uh, court-appointed court officials brought in and let a grand jury decide. Well, Whoa. Exactly, exactly. Because like with uh, Lee Grenade, her story, as we, that was the first one you mentioned. And, uh, you know, the thing is, I also filed a FOIA request from SLED and I haven't gotten any information. And that was probably over, well over a month ago. So just not yeah, typical. Yeah. And, and 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 again now, where do you go? You you filed it. So what's your recourse? Where do you go? If you go, who do you go to? If you go to a lawyer, okay, uh, I'll I'll steal some more money from you. Give me two thousand dollars and I'll look into this, and then basically nothing happens. Right. You can't go to, to, to the court system. Well, hey, that's how that's how the uh, this agency operates. Uh, you know, so you know, where do you go? That's the big, the big question here. Where do you go? You know, where you can't, if you go to your, to your uh, so-called state uh, officials, mm -hmm. they blow you off. Right. When you get blown off by your state officials, well, where do you go? Where do you go to say, well, my, my state representative ignored, ignored my concern here. Well, where do you go? There is no place to go in this country. The system is so corrupt and so evil it's intentionally set up that way. They make their own rules. You mm -hmm. know, you file a misconduct complaint against a judge and who reviews it? Other judges. Many times it's friends of the judges. They sit on the same court. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, I mean, I wrote about uh, the statistics in, in, in my book uh, where essentially it's almost zero. There's almost, uh, when judicial misconduct complaints are filed against uh, federal judges, it's almost a zero rate where the judges are actually found to be committed any misconduct and so forth. For what and my my case is example uh, example uh, A. Uh, it's sitting in Washington D.C. right now in front of the Judicial Con uh, Conference of the United States. They are afraid to make a determination because they don't want the public to know that our courts are are very corrupt. Uh, it works. And where do you go? I went to I went to my uh, United States Senator Todd Young, and I explained to him. I said, "Please, can you look into? It? Oh, I'll send a letter for you. Okay, on your behalf." That's what he told me. So then, after some time goes by, I contact him. Hey, we heard anything? I haven't heard anything back yet. We'll let you know when we hear something back. A couple times of that, and then I said, "You know what? I'd like to see a copy of the letter that you say you sent on my behalf." Oh, we don't send the constituents copies of letters. Uh, so we don't do that. I said, what do you mean you don't do that? We're constituents. We're entitled to see this. This is what you, so, but my question again, where do you go? The U.S. Senator says he did something. I don't believe he did because he won't provide me with a cop, uh, a copy of the documentation to back up what he said he did. So where do you go? There's nowhere to go. There should be grand juries. 
in the country. There should be a, you know, if if we have to have a fair and level playing field here. So if the system, we all know that the system is corrupt. We already know that. We know that for sure. There's no question about it. And we also know that there's nowhere to go for any redress. So we need, the people need to demand that our government, state and federal both, provide a, a, a way for the people to report, to not just directly report and they get blown off, but for there to be an office of some kind, of some kind that will actually investigate these particular kinds of things and hold grand juries. I guarantee you, if there were a few grand juries that were held around the country and they brought in several uh, corrupt judges and and convicted those judges and it and it came out into the news media there was a grand jury uh, convened over here in this state over here in this state and over here in this state and you start having those taking place around and the media would be on top of that then these judges and these crooked lawyers and crooked uh, other agency officials would know you know what you know, we have to be real careful here. I might not be able to stick any more money in your pocket here as mm -hmm. a judge so that I can get the decision that I need here because I may find myself in front of a grand jury. As long as they don't have to worry about it, the status quo will continue. No mm -hmm. question about it. We need grand juries to investigate these corrupt lawyers and judges and government officials particularly what's going on in the family courts. Uh, you actually, Marianne, enlightened me a lot. I, I've done a lot of uh, research on corruption in the courts, mostly in the federal courts, quite a bit in the state courts that I've researched and wrote about and so forth. And, uh, and you actually enlightened me to the problem of the, what's going on in the family courts and uh, I'm I'm reaching my own personal conclusion. Probably there's probably more corruption going on in the family courts than any other type of court. Uh, there just seems to be a lot of intimate uh, relationships between lawyers and the family court judges, uh, and where sometimes uh, it's a little bit more detached in other federal courts. There's corruption going on but it's a lot harder to do. It's going on, but it's a lot easier to do in the family courts. And they know it. The judges know it. Hey, uh, you're my buddy. Uh, when, when I was a lawyer, we, we, you know, we were friends. We did. And now here you are. You're collecting money over here. We got a weak uh, person over here on the other side. Let's just put the pressure on and let's get the money, the cash flow going. And uh, let's go 50-50 here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you 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 get ten thousand dollars. I get five thousand dollars out of ten thousand dollars. That's what those two clowns ended up with in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. uh, receiving all that money for putting those. Uh, oh. I mean, come on. Basically, these are just kids. Kids do things, and now I got a profit off of it because of a oh. uh, of a kid doing something foolish mm -hmm. that didn't really hurt anybody. And they're just they're young anyway. You know, they're in their lower teens. You know, a lot of them. And uh, hey, yeah, let's build this center, and let's. Uh, I'll just, I'll just, I'll fill it up for you, and I'll get rich off of it. And you'll get rich off of it. And luckily, in that particular case, they they did nab the two crooks. But we got too many out there right now in the country that need to be nabbed, and uh, and prosecuted and put in jail. And uh, this needs to be done. So 
it's a good, I, you know, I'm really glad you, this podcast, I've done a lot of interviews and I'm going to tell you, and I've told people, I mean, you have a, yours, yours is at the top. Yours is at the top, what you're doing. Thank and you. This book that you just wrote, Raised by These Wolves. I mean, it, it reading the stories, you want to cry when you read the stories. And then uh, you talk about how some of the people would call you and you had experience in the court system and you would give them great advice on things. And uh, it's just, uh, it, it, this is a must read. And if I could, I'd like to read one paragraph out of the book, if it's okay. By all means, sure. Okay, I'm going to read, I'm going to read out of Marianne's book, Raised by These Wolves, on page 103. This paragraph I'm going to read pretty much says it all. Quote, the Constitutional Republic died long ago, leaving Lady Justice holding the unbalanced scales loaded down with payoffs involving kids for cash, parents being imprisoned for non-support, and parents finding no redress in these courtrooms. The Title IV incentives, ASFA and CPS, have done so much destruction to the threads of the American family. We will never recover unless massive change happens and the public starts demanding justice as no one is immune to the well-oiled machinery of the justice system, working smoothly, breeding corruption and greed by CPS and our judiciary. That paragraph says it all about what we're discussing here. So I urge everybody, the audience, get this book, read these stories. You're going to shed a tear when you read the stories. And and uh, you're going to see a lot of great things that Marianne talked about in terms of some you know recommendations she has for things and so forth. So let's do this. This is an important book. Uh, and honestly, I wouldn't say that if if uh, if I didn't think it was true. Uh, you know, I just you know you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna shed tears when you read these stories. And Marianne has some solutions to some of these problems. We need to put them in force on any effect. That's the bottom line here. Oh, thank you for reading that. I totally appreciate you coming back on. I'm gonna have you back on again because um, I saw pictures of you doing a, a your book signing with your rogues in black robes. And uh, how long did you have to sit there when you did that book signing? Well, it was it was four hours. Uh, oh. it, it was great. Uh, I, I I got a lot of different pictures, and and I um, I don't like to just throw everything under the sun out there. And people sometimes they think, well, he's bragging, you know, and so forth. Uh, but it was great. Uh, I did it in Terre Haute, Indiana, which is in southern Indiana, and. Uh, got to talk to a lot of great people, signed a lot of books and so forth. And it's an opportunity, the book signings. I love doing them because I love to actually talk to people mm -hmm. as much as possible. And you get the, you know, they ask a lot of questions. You're able to answer a lot of questions and so forth. And, uh, and then they leave and then they get, you know, th that helps get the word out too. You know, then they go right. and they talk to their friends and so forth. And then they asked me, uh, they, they asked me to come back and uh, I'm going to do a speaking engagement there. Uh, so I'm going to go back there in, in March. Uh, this was in a public library in uh, Vigo County Public Library in Terre Haute, Indiana. And what happened was, was uh, the newspaper down there in Terre Haute wrote an article about me coming down there. Mm -hmm. And then some people in Terre Haute saw it. 
And then uh, one of them actually called me and we had a long discussion about the court court corruption going on there in Southern Indiana and so forth. And then uh, and then I got a I got an email from one of the directors at the at the library there. She said, hey, we're getting people are calling here and wanting us to get you to come down here and speak. So we worked that out. So I'm going to come down there. I think it's on uh, I'm going to go down there. I think it's on March 7th. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to speak about uh, my books and judicial corruption, just like what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. And so we're supposed to have a pretty good audience there for that. Hopefully I'll get it recorded and maybe be able to put it out here. So, yeah, the the books, uh, I, I didn't get into writing these books, to, you know, to, to get rich. You know, I mean, you don't really get rich. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. But you're able to get the word out. And, you know, I just want to, you know, be able to get the word out so people understand. Sometimes, you know, I had a lot of people would say to me, boy, oh, boy, I didn't know it was that bad. You know, so I, mm -hmm. I have, you know, I back up everything I say. I have. I have many people, including many of my friends, would say to me, boy, oh boy, you said that judge, you named that judge by name, and you call that judge corrupt in your book. Aren't you worried about being sued? Not at all. I don't worry about that at all. If, if a judge wants to sue me that I have called corrupt in any of my books or other writings, uh, have fun. If you want to sue me, so I'll put you on the stand and we'll talk about just how corrupt you are. <laughs> so I'm not at all worried about being sued at all. I don't even give it a thought. I just respond to the questions about it. And uh, and uh, this is uh, so right now, you know, these judges know, you know, I'm, I've got their number and, and we have to be fair. here. Now, there are some good judges out there. <laughs> we have to be fair. Uh, one corrupt judge is one too many, but but it's a it's a systemic problem. Actually, there's mm -hmm. there's a great deal of corruption uh, in the federal judiciary, the state judiciary, and whoa, what I'm seeing in the family court system, uh, maybe more there than anywhere. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm sure there's some good judges there as well, but uh, as again, one is one too many, and and it's a problem all over the country. There's no question about it. Your book shows that because you talk about cases from all over the country, from different states and so forth. So uh, that's where we're at in this country. And unless we stand up and do something about it. And put them into family court. That, that way they, they see more of a black and white as right. opposed to, oh, you know, let's disregard evidence. You know, I don't think I, I mean, I have a higher opinion of a criminal court judge than I do a family court judge. Uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, well, uh, I have, you know, I have mixed uh, mixed feelings about the whole uh, the whole bag here because uh, there's so much corruption going on in all of them. And I think you're right. There's probably more going on, more corruption going on in the family courts. Although, I mean, I know from personal experience, because uh, in my ordeal and my situation from back in the day, I, I, I had to appear in front of numerous uh, criminal judges. And I had a situation that I had to deal with where, where the prosecutor intentionally withheld evidence, exculpatory evidence that would have proved innocence. And uh, they went ahead and, you know, tried me. And then after the fact, after the trial was over and they put the penalties on me, then I find out two years later that the police officer actually did like what these caseworkers are doing, uh, lied on the documents. And then in this particular case, in my case, uh, he switched an affidavit on one affidavit 
they, they were trying to, and we talked about this earlier in some of our other shows. Uh, I was prosecuted 10 different times. I mean, I had a target on my back. You know, when I learned early on, you stand up to, to the court corruption and, and, uh, uh, government corruption. And when I say government, that takes a lot of different forms. It could be police. It could be, uh, employment, government type employment, you know, agencies and so forth. When you stand up and then if it gets into the news, you just simply have a target on your back. We have to stop this person. Somehow we have to stop this person. We cannot allow this person to continue putting our corruption out into the news media. So they use, you know, there's different ways that they do it. You know, they they, they screw you around in your court case. In my case, they, uh, it was police that were actually used to do it. And I, I crushed them one by one by one by one, 10 different times. Uh, I even got the governor, the governor of Indiana, this is a very conservative state. I even got him to agree and uh, that there was uh, the, the corruption took place. And they, out of 10 cases, nine of the cases, I, I, I won hands down. The cases were dismissed or I was found not guilty with a jury and so forth. And then on the one particular case, the officer lied and stated at the trial that he found empty beer cans in my car. So he can get a conviction against me when, in fact, what he found in my car, this is a great example. This comes back to the situation with that that we talked about earlier with that. They, they determined that there was uh, uh, arson involved and they didn't want to look at the evidence, despite what the uh, forensic experts saw. So so then I found out two years later because I filed another federal lawsuit to get information. This particular uh, policeman, he actually wrote down. On, a, on, a, on his original affidavit that he found empty pop cans in my car, soda cans is what he found in my car. So what he did, well, you know what? I'm going to have to lie at this trial to get a conviction. So he switches the affidavit and then he gets on the stand and he tells the jury he found empty beer cans in my car. Two years later, when I filed a federal lawsuit to get information, then that affidavit surfaced. So had had he had not switched that affidavit, he could not have then lied at the trial about the beer cans because I could have confronted him with the affidavit. So th the point was, let me switch the affidavit. I can lie at the trial and he can't prove it because he doesn't have my actual. And then after I filed a federal lawsuit, I took the deposition of the prosecutor and I asked him, when did you did you ever learn about the, the affidavit that was switched? And here his exact words, his testimony on the deposition was, well, he told me about that in passing. Huh. Like we were walking down the hallway and he mentioned it to me in the hallway. Well, guess what? Guess what? The prosecutor, there's a, uh, the leading decision in the United States, it's Brady versus Maryland. When you watch these high profile cases, you'll see him talk about that here or there. It's Brady versus Maryland, the Supreme Court long ago ruled that prosecutors must turn over all evidence not evidence that they feel that they only want to share and they want to hold back they're supposed to they're they have an obligation in to turn over the exculpatory evidence the exculpatory meaning evidence that can show your your innocence to the crime mm -hmm. so my question is well you know what how come that prosecutor is not in jail he withheld the evidence now the governor of indiana uh uh, at the time, it was Mitch Daniels. So he went ahead and issued a pardon then because the Indiana courts were perfectly fine 
with that corruption. They knew about the switching of the evidence. They knew it, looked the other way, said, too bad for you. But the governor actually did the right thing and he gave a pardon. So it took, it took you know, 10 cases that I had to deal with, my own. And uh, this is another show, but we talked about this. But I started representing myself because I also went through what a lot of these people were going through that you wrote about, shelling out the money for the lawyers. And then I decided one day after I found out my lawyer was doing who knows what behind the scenes, I started representing myself. Best decision I ever made in my life. Best decision ever. Uh, you know, I represented myself. I, I got all the cases that I represented myself in. I think there were five of them. I got them all dismissed, every one of them without a lawyer. And then I thought later on, I decided, you know what, I'm going to start writing about this and drawing the public awareness to it. So that's what brought us here today. And brought, yeah, and brought us together. Absolutely. <laughs> Fortunately or unfortunately, we're, we're in all this together, but I want to have you back on and, um, you know, how can people reach you if they have any questions? Hey, I, I have a website. Uh, if it's okay for me to say on here, sure. uh, com, B-R-I-A-N-V-U-K-A-D as in dog, I-N-O-V-I-C-H, com, And on my website, I have a lot of uh, links to my interviews and there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of writings that I've done. I've done blogs. I've done, I've been published in the Washington Examiner, the American Thinker, and so forth. So a lot of my writings are on there about judicial corruption. Uh, I talk about things like the Judiciary Act that we just discussed here a little while ago and so forth, and Haynes versus Kerner, and a lot of other things. So if people can read those writings, I can kind of maybe lead them into a little direction that might be able to help them a little bit. Mm -hmm. So if they'll go on my website, and then I have my, my email addresses on there, it's uh, Brian, Brian Vukadinovich at motion for at motionforjustice.com. I you have to look on there. You know, I, I'm I'm drawing a blank here. Um no, it's motion, it's motionforjustice at yahoo.com is what it is. Okay. All these dot coms are hard, I to know. Keep, hard to keep track of. It's motionforjustice at yahoo.com. And it's on my it's on my website. A lot of people after we do these shows, a lot of people will go on there and I get a lot of emails from people. And it's it's the number four motion for justice. Yes, number four. Yep. Oh, I'll put everything in the podcast notes. And I totally thank you for coming on this so early in the morning. <laughs> but uh, uh my pleasure. Always <laughs> good to do the show with you, Marianne. Always. Definitely. Well, thank you. Uh, don't jump off. Slam the gavels, the podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I am your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth, and recently released, Raised by These Wolves, How Family and Federal Courts Are Failing Our Children. Please join Brian Bukadinovich and myself on an another episode. You can find me on Spotify, Apple iTunes, Anchor FM, iHeartRadio, and you YouTube and feel free to donate to buy me a cup of coffee to help support this podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. Well, it was my pleasure, Marianne. It truly was. Thank you for inviting me back on. Thank you.